Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This edition of the Artelligence Podcast was recorded in Los Angeles during the 2020 Freeze Art Fair. Art News' editor-in-chief, Sarah Douglas, sat down for a conversation with two well-known Los Angeles collectors, Rick Whitney and Tina Perry Whitney. Let's hand the conversation over to Sarah Douglas. You know, so how we sort of conceived of this of this talk that we're doing today is talking about, since they are relatively new to this, you know, how do collectors come into this art world and this community and, and become a part of it? But before we talk about that, I think it's really important that um, we hear a little bit about um, their journey, um, but also specifically about what they collect and why they collect. Because you have some artists in here that probably a lot, a lot of you might recognize at least the names and you have some artists who you know they're they they have a history in la the the choices are more i think idiosyncratic i first wanted to i know a lot of you in this room know rick and tina um but i think i should tell you that rick is a music publishing and uh talent management entrepreneur and tina is and you have to tell me if i get your title correct because i might have one that's before but it's um, general manager of Oprah Winfrey Network. I'm president. President. Yes. yes. It's changed. Oh, same. Same job. It's, do the same work. Okay, same <laughs> job. It's a different title. I hope you're getting more money. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing I'd really like to hear about is, um, you know, how this collection came together. Um, and I, I just want to tell you some of the things that the two of you have said about your collection and some of the things you, that you, you know, shared with me. Um, so the one thing we can say about this collection is solely contemporary art. So where you want to start that chronology, I think varies, but we're talking about art that in the present that's made, let's say in the past 10 years, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, but from there, it goes to something very heterogeneous. So um, in there, in Rick's words, you know, artists across gender and sexual orientation from African-American descent in the African diaspora, but we also focus heavily on artists who represent varied racist ethnicities and nationalities. There's also a wide variety of mediums in this collection. So you have some collectors who are really focused on painting, some who are really focused on photography. They're really collecting across mediums. And so I think like what, then the question is, all right, so what's the common denominator? Like what makes something special? So I'm gonna tell you, Tina has said, um, one common denominator is that every artist is creating interesting contemporary conversational works that are true to their practice. Rick, you've said works that speak both covertly and overtly to issues of social justice and personal reflection. Um, so we're seeing a lot of, of works go by here and I hope we can, maybe you, you first, Tina, can pick one of them, and if it's not on the screen, we'll get to it eventually, and tell me the story of how it came into the collection. Right. Um, so the one I'll pick is a Jamal Cyrus piece you guys just saw with the bass drum and the mics. Um, Rick and I love to travel for art. I think that's all we do when we travel. We make sure we're going to see art. I don't know if that's healthy or not. And um, we were in Philadelphia uh, seeing a show at the ICA. 
It was the Freedom Principles show that had traveled. It started in Chicago, went there, and we had specifically wanted to see that show because we were very curious about a lot of the artists in it. And um, we walked into this room, and that was one of the pieces in the room, and, like, our hearts stopped. And as we got on our phones and started trying to learn about the artist and who it was and took in, like, the piece itself, and, you know, there was just this, like, continual conversation about what it meant to us and what we saw. Rick has a journalism background from the University of Missouri, so he's a news hound, as I like to call him. But, you know, we just found ourselves, like, we couldn't stop talking about this piece. Um, it's the bass drum is wrapped in a leather jacket. And, um, you know, it, con- it, it, it makes you think about this press conferences where people have mics in everybody's face about things and the world we live in now and what the press is right now. But the leather jacket um, was a reference to the Black Panthers and about when mics were in their face and what they were talking about. And it was a kind of a hint at radicals or people that, you know, are being talked to that maybe it's not the popular moment or the excited moment everybody wants to hear, but a sensational moment that maybe is against the, the, the grain of what's happening. So that piece for me was just, I just knew there was an energy between us we felt being with it. And as we learned more and more about the artist, I know it really, uh, we liked what he was doing in his practice, what he was talking about. We actually acquired another piece before that by Jamal um, that was a, uh, he took a page of an FBI file from Malcolm X's file with the FBI and what he did is it's, he removed all the words and it's all the redactions in the page. And he, it's ginormous. It fills like a huge wall. And it is just a beautiful piece that once people understand the context of what it is. But we love his practice, what he does. But that's what, for us, um, ultimately it took us a while to decide to pull the trigger. You know, living with a piece of art like that in your home, a sculpture in that. We know it's not something on the wall. We were starting getting used to, like, at the time, having sculptures and pieces around the house. Um, so for me, that, that was my memory. Anything you'd add on that? Yeah, I think for Jamal's practice is also very broad. Uh, you know, she mentioned the redaction piece. Uh, you know, this piece is effectively a ready-made piece. I mean, you're talking about mics and a drum, and he didn't necessarily, quote-unquote, create anything new. But the way that he put the piece together, and I think there's a, a, an interesting dialogue about that expression, and I think for us, that means a lot in terms of art. I mean, the idea that it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a quote-unquote new expression of hand that they've created this new outlet, but it could be something in just the way that the artist has put the uh, piece of pieces together and the story that those pieces are telling. So I'd like to, I'd like you to pick out a piece, but I want to just get a, a question in here. Is, is it important for you? You know, there. It seems to me. I mean, there are two kinds of collectors. You know, but there, in, in a way, there are collectors who don't care about meeting the artist. They're just, I like this, I don't care about meeting the artist, I don't need to know more about what it's about, it's just a great piece that, you know. Then there are other collectors who become very, very close with artists and really want to know about the intent and want to know, you know, so is it important for the two of you to, to, to know and meet the artists and understand what their, sort of what their project is? Uh, I think definitely. I mean, you know, the plus I think with our collection being focused on contemporary art is that a lot of the artists are still alive. Yeah. And there is something to be said about having a dialogue with the artist, being able to you know, get a true sense of what they're thinking, what they're feeling when they're creating work. Yeah. But then at the same time, also just getting to know them as an individual. Because I think a big uh, underpinning of you know, contemporary art and collecting contemporary art is the, the patrons aspect. So the idea that if we can do things to support individuals who are living a life where they're creating new, uh, new beautiful things for us to look at, 
there's nothing more exciting about you know knowing them personally, being able to have a conversation with them, and seeing sort of what the direction that they want to take things. So, Ad, um, you know, when all this art in our house that we live with, we think of it like there's an energy that's resonating from it. When I walk, we walk in the door from a stressful day, a tough time, a disappointing moment. We walk through those doors, and the work, the amount of work that each person has put into all those pieces, we feel it, and it rejuvenates us. This is a privilege. It is a privilege to get to buy work that somebody who has a creative talent is making and giving us that opportunity and to live with it in our home. And so it is important to us if we get a chance to meet that artist, hear from them. But, you know, I, you know, I, would, I wish I had the ounce of creativity these people had to make this work. Um, and also the courage to go live your life to do it, where it's a very difficult life, I think, as an artist in the world that we're in. We don't support them, I think, as much as we should. So it is critical for us. Um, I think just about everyone we've kind of yeah. gotten to know and, and spent time. Yeah. It's interesting. This is a, I hadn't planned to talk about this, but, um, you know, when you say, I wish I had an ounce of the creativity. I mean, I was in someone's collection recently, and there was an artist who had made this piece where you're looking at it from afar and it seems just like an abstraction. And then you learn that she made it from, um, you know, like uh, those envelopes that have a pattern on the inside. Mm -hmm. She made it from those envelopes mm -hmm. and used them in this really unbelievably creative way. And I thought, you know what's so amazing about this, this art is that when you look at it, to me, you know, it, it helps you to maybe solve a problem that you're thinking about. I mean, I think there's creativity in the corporate world, I think mm -hmm. there's creativity. It's about, you know, artists, I was talking with someone recently, we said, you know, in a way you could just define an artist as they're solving a puzzle they set for themselves. Mm -hmm. Like all of us are solving puzzles in yeah. one way or another. You know, you look at something and you get inspiration yeah. for, well, what's a different way I can do this? That's you know? a great way to put it. Anyhow, um, so I want to hear, Rick, why don't you tell sure. us a story about a, about a piece here? Uh, let's see here. I'm trying to remember everything that's in here, but... Um... Actually, let's go with this piece here. Uh, Joe Ray is an artist um, here based in Los Angeles. He's worked as, um, I, I kind of call it like art handler, conservator for the, uh, the Broads for many, many years. And we were introduced to his work through a show at uh, Diane Rosenstein's gallery, um, oh gosh, maybe three years ago. And actually, this particular piece, it was, he made it in 1980. And that's oddly, I think, the oldest piece that we have in our in our collection. So it's going back forty years. But um, the piece spoke to us because there was a beauty in it, in the sense of the way that the uh, the painting texture, the way that he he layered. Um, and then there's also a, a textual base with it. It says race across the top, and then uh, constellation complexion at the bottom, or complexion constellation if I flipped it. But um, there's something about that that notion of you know there's no race in space and being a um, you know sort of one being sort of piece of and coming from an African American artist we found it extraordinarily strong mm -hmm. and he had also created work in that show that was effectively derivative of this piece uh, so new works works that at that time I think it was 2017 that he made and you could see that from 1980 to 2017 there was still a level of dexterity a still a, a way that he created these works that they were they were in the same vein but the difference being that the new works that he created didn't have any of the uh, the text commentary to it but i think once we we saw the piece we had a chance to have a conversation about it um learned more about him as an artist 
And again, it was one where we, you know, we, we know and see and read about a lot of artists, but he was one that even being here, you know, in, in, in LA, we hadn't had the chance to meet and or know a lot about, but through his work, that gave us another uh, avenue to sort of learn about him as a, a practitioner. Yeah. And he, and he also went to Chouinard, um, which was kind of the predecessor to CalArts, yeah. which yeah. was very, he came up with Ed Ruscha, and that was like his peer group, and he's still practicing, still making work, still selling. And there was something about, you know, wow, this man back then went to art school at CalArts and like, you know, honed his practice, figured out kind of how to, and then still, you know, to make this work that's still really relevant today. Yeah, I think that consistency, I think that's sort of what we're uh, alluding to in terms of, this being work that he's done early on to work that he was still continuing to do to this day. And no, I mean, he's not necessarily a name that I think a lot of people have on the, uh, the tip of their tongue when they think about even L.A. artists, but there's still something to be said about he's an artist, and he hasn't changed his, his vein in all of these years, whether you know a lot of people are talking about him, whether he's written up in art news or not, but he's a fantastic artist, and there's something about being able to support that. Well... Maybe now that people are hearing this, the, the name will get out there. And um, But I, I want to know, um, you mentioned this is the earliest piece chronologically in the collection. I wondered about, you know, can you remember the first piece that you bought? And, and you know, or maybe the first piece that was like, okay, now we're, we've caught the bug. We're collectors now, you know. What would you say? Yeah. Um couple different stories, I guess. I mean, I, I would think of it because we kind of had two different worlds when it came to art early on. So before we met, Tina had her own affinity towards art, and I also had my own affinity. I lived downtown, uh, went to grad school at USC, and lived amongst artists downtown, and had the chance to befriend you know, quite a few people. And that was sort of my first real introduction to artists and the way that they live, and learned a lot about how artists put their heart and souls into practices. And I ended up, I guess probably 2006, was a, a commission that I had from an artist friend of mine. That was the very first piece. Mm -hmm. But I think for her, she, had, she can tell her you know, the yeah, story. But I um, always loved art, but I was the kid that would like go to the museums in Europe and get the headphones and walk around and look at Zubaran and all these other artists. And then I went to the sensation show that Charles Saatchi did um, back in 1998. He had a seminal show where he broke all these British contemporary artist. I know I, I, I saw it in London. So I was in school getting a master's overseas and the okay. show was actually in London and I bought a ticket and went and it like changed me because I was like, this is what I want to do in my life. I want to collect contemporary art. I have no idea if I'm ever going to have the money. If I can't ever collect it, I just want to be around it. So that was always in me. And I lived in New York where the barriers to entry were very high. You know, I could go to Whitney Museum. I could go to you know, MoMA, but there was always this area of like art collecting and people, I just knew I was missing out of and I wasn't penetrating and I wasn't figuring out. And then when I moved to LA, I found this really accessible world. I didn't have any friends here. My job moved me here. I didn't go to school here. So I worked and then I found myself like just constantly going to art shows. And it was here where I was like, wow, maybe I will be able to figure this piece out. But I still didn't completely understand about how you collect, what you do, pricing, galleries. I was just showing up, consuming, trying to read, and just experience and enjoy it. And then we met, and it was kind of interesting because he was the first boyfriend I had had that like really had a passion for art, uh, like I did. And it was a really natural place. And so I remember 
one story when we get into kind of the first piece yeah. um, where I was like, okay, we're engaged, we're going to get married, we really want to collect. And in my mind, I was like, I remember I always wanted to do that. And we uh, went to a Bernie Young blood show at Honor Fraser, and there was a piece there, and we really wanted I see somebody in the left smiling because he knows the story. And it was above our, our price range, like, of what we should have been doing, but it was this piece uh, we loved, and we wanted to buy it, and everybody's swirling, and you should get it, and you're in this moment, and it's like, do I do it? We were going to pull the trigger, and then, like, we put it on hold, and then we went outdoors, and we had this, like, heated conversation. It was a, it was a fight. It was a <laughs> Yeah. And, I mean, I remember it pretty vividly. So we were, we were at her place in, uh, in Santa Monica, and we were in the kitchen talking. And she pretty much just kind of made that same little uh, plea about, you know, this is what we were, you know, we're doing. And I pretty much was like, why are we doing this? We're not ready for this yet. We hadn't really planned amongst all the other things that we kind of planned for. And I think I ended it with more of, you have no idea where things are going to go, but believe you me, we're going to build a collection over time. Pretty much F this particular piece. Let's move on. And she was, you know, we went back and forth. But ultimately, we decided to, to pass on the piece. I had to call the gallery, and I yeah. called Honor, and I had a very honest conversation with her. I told her, said, I'm getting married. My, we talked about this, and we're not going to get the piece. And I was like, we're going to collect, and we're going to collect deeply and seriously, but we got to do it at a pace in a way that makes sense. And I remember that being a hard call, because I'd never, like, had to call somebody and, like, renege on something I said I was going to do. You know what I mean? Honor was wonderful, and she understood it. Um, so that was like the first false start, where it was like a really deep. And now we have a couple pieces for Brittany Youngblood right. as well. In time. Yeah. But I'd say the really first piece where like, I think it really hit us of like, oh wow, we're collecting. And this is a small win of a moment, but it was a seminal moment. We, you know, Incognito, Santa Monica Museum of Art used to have Incognito in Santa Monica at Bergamont Station. And it was our first one. We were so excited. We had never heard of this in the city. People had finally told us about it. You actually have to tell me. Oh, Incognito. It's it's this event where the museum picks 500 artists. Yeah, maybe maybe a little less. all make one piece of work the exact same size, and you don't know whose work it is. So it hangs on the wall, and there's a number. And so every work is priced the same, $300. Now I think it's at $500. But back then it may have been $250. And... It's like a mad dash to get in when it opens, and everybody's like snatching numbers, and then you go pick up your work, and when you pick up your work, you get to know whose work it is. So it's kind of like a guessing game. So you're really buying on site. It's like the masked singer. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. You either have some people that are great eye collectors can go in and like swoop up all the people they know it is. We were very early on, and like a little bit of like, you know, a little traumatic at first because these people are running around and elbowing you to get the work. And we picked about three pieces, and then when we went to check out, um, we discovered one of the pieces was by... Uh, Oscar Rilla. And it was oh, wow. right when he was sort of having his, his, his very early moment. He had just done a show in Los Angeles uh, with The Mistake Room, and we, at that point, I think we kind of met him in passing, but never, didn't really know him as well as we do now. But that was a piece, and we felt like, oh, wow, this is a piece that we were... And kind of a cool moment in, in, in very early on within the collecting space. But that said, I think that's one where I think it's hanging in a bedroom right now. Yeah. But we still have it, and, you know, it, it was one of the earlier pieces that we, we bought together. It was. It was right after the, his yeah. show, his first show in L.A., yeah. and he was definitely on his rise. Yeah. Um, but so that actually, since you brought up this 
argument that the two of you had. Um, how do you buy pieces together now? What's that process like? Oh, it's very collective. Um, I mean, we kind of have a, a rule where we don't really buy anything unless we're both into it. And again, you can attempt to persuade the other. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's been some times, you know, we both equally persuade. He's so, he's, he is caught me in some very hungry, hangry moments where I'm like, no, I'm like, and he was like, okay, stop, like, look at this, and we debate, and then he's brought me over more. Yeah, but that said, I mean, it's it's very much a um, a, a partnership in that respect also, and that, it kind of just comes from the idea that we're, we're going to live with the work, yeah. and we both are in the space, and it's to a certain degree only fair that if you're around it, then yes. you want to like it, hopefully as much as the other person likes it. Being in New York, you were kind of, you know, a little bit checking out the museums, but you weren't, you know, in the art world, so to speak. And um, then you moved to L.A. and, and you know, you started collecting art, and I think you've become involved, you know, both of you as patrons. And I just want to hear a little bit about how that happened, because, you know, I should point out that they don't work with an art advisor. They don't have, you know, a curator helping them decide and get, you know, access and so forth. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me um, L.A. is maybe a little more fluid and possible for people to come into the art world. I don't know. I don't live here. So you should, yeah. you know, I, I, I want to know how that, how that happened. I think you're 100% right. I mean, um, there's an openness to this city about supporting, um, going to events. You know, I've never seen somebody turned away from, like, an art event. I don't know if, I mean, like, it just doesn't happen here. And I was turned away from stuff in New York all the time, where I wasn't on the list, I couldn't get in. Um, Galleries are everywhere. There's always an opening. It's it's turned into a social thing. So I think it's just so much more accessible. And people share more here. You know, there are some collectors, absolutely, when we first started collecting, that were older, have been doing it for 40, 50 years, and really shared knowledge with us about things um, and explained stuff and were inspirations. And in New York, I just never crossed with those people. Okay. What I also found is that um, in L.A., people share information also about the global way you can travel with art and engage, from the yeah. fairs and going to the... And that is a big thing that I never had people in New York, like, encouraging and talking about. I was traveling all the time, but nobody told me about fairs in Basel or yeah. fairs, in, you know what I mean? But people just talk and share here a lot more if you're interested. And so I think that that's one of the easiest ways if you want to get involved is go to a museum, go to an event, befriend people. We've met so many friends at events, at random people's houses for art events that you're standing next to. It's the most friendly world. And um, and also when you find somebody collects, like ask anything and everything you want. People aren't competitive about it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying too. And I want to hear what you, you were about to say, Ruth, but we were talking about this on the phone, and it seems to me, and I just thought of another example of this, you know, there was an article that came out in the Times that was an interview with Jimmy Iovine, and he was sort of saying, I don't get this from music anymore. Like, there's something happening in art right now that I'm not, you know, getting from music anymore. But it occurs to me that there was also, um, anyhow, Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio on, I think, Mark Maron's show, and they start talking about art and how much, how into it they are. It just seems to me there's like there's a lot of excitement about this in in this city in particular that you don't really see in New York. New York's a little more like it's just taken for granted that everyone's always been interested in art. I mean, we just ran something about you know Donald Maron who was collecting for years, Payne Weber and all that, and he was kind of like, oh, and then I got past the velvet rope, you know. And I think he was talking about like he got to buy something from Gagosian, which isn't that crazy? He got to buy something, like, mm-hmm. you know. But anyhow, it's, it seems does seem to me LA is a little more. 
And then the article in the Times, if anyone saw it recently, about all these artist-run spaces, which is so great. Um, but I also wanted to, to ask you too, if you know, you've had the experience of now that you've been collecting for a little bit, you know, having people over to your house, which I know you, you do with some frequency, and um, you know, who are looking at the art who themselves become inspired to, to become collectors. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, we, we, we have a lot of conversations with, um, you know, people, certainly people younger than us as well, and really just more about the importance, I think, of patronage and being able to support that creative community. And again, you know, to us, patronage is kind of the big umbrella, and then, you know, collecting is one of myriad things you can do to support. But again, that accessibility, being able to share knowledge, I think, you know, what she alluded to is really how we, we see it as well. And we were very fortunate, whether it's between spaces where we sit on the board or from fellow collectors, from you know, curators, we were able to have some conversations early on that at least helped guide us through you know, sort of that collecting world. And as much as we can give that back is, is, is definitely paramount. I do want to hear about some of the places that you currently support. Can you tell us sure. Um, uh, I sit on the board of CalArch, which is an art school in the Southern California area out of Valencia. And then I'm also on the board of the Mistake Room. Um, it's a, a space downtown, a physical space. We have a, it's a it's a location for creators, ideas, um, work, um, and we have a very strong international connection too. Um, we bring a lot of artists here. We do shows with artists in Guadalajara. We're a very um, evolving space. We just hit our five year anniversary, but it was an important. Um, I helped found that space kind of at the earliest years of our collection collecting, which was a really important moment because I started a community too. And there's a lot of places to get involved with the community in that way in LA. Um, and then, and then yeah, Cesar Garcia is here who runs yeah. that space. And yeah, we've both been very close to them. Uh, I sit on the board of LAX Art, which uh, is now run by Hamza Walker, who's you know, one of the most fantastic curators. And again, one, uh, an individual who is you know very open to share and have conversation. And his you know, his depth and wealth of knowledge in the arts is. Tremendous. Um, also spent a lot of time with another uh, curator, a guy named Roger Gaspin, who's in a corner with an orange hat on. He's in uh, the street graffiti art space. Uh, you know, he's done a lot in terms of beyond the streets, uh, art in the streets with uh, Jeffrey Deitch as well a few years, several years ago. And, you know, having those discussions with those type of curators is tremendous. I do want to share one thing. When he mentioned, you mentioned about sharing information, we get sent collectors from artists, from galleries, from uh, curators, who ask us, hey, this is a new couple who really wants to collect, and they are just confused, and will you just sit with them and talk with them? And people have flown in from Atlanta, from other places, and we give them a tour, (laughs) and we talk with them. We tell them about how galleries work, about flipping work, about you can collect because it's beautiful, you can collect for financial, you can collect because it's personal. You know, we try to give as much as we can because we want more young collectors. We want more diverse collectors. We want more collectors because guess what? We want the arts to stay and continue, and we want artists to have a life and a career. So the more people we can share information with, the better, and it's one of the best things we love to do. And then every now and then we get a picture from one of them of, like, guess what we just bought, and they've, yeah. like, figured out their journey. That's so, nice. yeah. 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 I mean, that's what, you know, essentially, like, these, the MoMA trustees, they're probably sending each other pictures of, you know, whatever <laughs> For sure. million dollar thing is eventually going to be yes. the MoMA. Um, so I, I want to. I, I have so many other things I'd like to ask them about, but um, including, you know, they, they have incorporated, um, you know, what's sometimes called street art, sometimes referred to as graffiti art, into their collecting as well. For us, contemporary art is, you know, what we what we collect, and we, I mean, street and graffiti art, however you want to position it, it's contemporary art. 
and, and there are a lot of fantastic, fantastic artists, whether you're, you know, you're on a traditional canvas or you're creating something off canvas or, you know, out in the quote unquote wild, however you want to position it. Um, I think just the notion of being able to express and tell a story via your creativity, you know, regardless of the medium. Um, I mean, I noticed you have Swoon. You had a Swoon. Yeah, here, Swoon's a, yeah. a little bit in that area. Yeah, and there are lots of artists. And I think, I, you know, like I said, I just mentioned Roger, and he's done some fantastic shows mm-hmm. that relate to street and graffiti art. And, again, a lot of the artists are moving into gallery spaces, moving into museums. There's, fanta- you know, huge, huge shows. I mean, Cause was a street artist at one time. <laughs> yeah, and, but, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, it's some of those things that, you know, kind of break down over time as well. And I think, sure, there will be a moment where you'll see a lot more artists that you may consider string graffiti artists who will be more part of the, the seminal discussion within yeah. the fine art world. Yeah. I say, when we first started collecting, we heard from some people in the more fine art contemporary world, like, uh, street and graffiti art, and it's, like, all so different, and, like, people don't collect both, and you shouldn't. And we were just well, that's like... That's what I want to do. Yeah, and it was just like, no, like, artists are artists. You either support and love their work and respect their practice, or you don't. And it's like, we shouldn't be, like, segregating, Right. It's one thing if you don't want to collect it, but I think there's something wrong with not finding that work as legitimate because it's very expensive and they trade really well in auction. And if you like, that's what you care about, like don't kid yourself, right? But it's just a different expression, a different approach at making work. And um, we hang our work separately and we have separate rooms for them because we find the experience of living with street and graffiti art in one room and then you go to another room that's like, it just is kind of all-encompassing. But, you know, I know that some people that collect that are good friends that are more in the contemporary fine art world, you know, they're always so shocked when they're like, oh, wow, like, you do street graffiti art too? And they're just like, and I'm like, yeah, but they spend a lot of time in the room looking at the work, and they're like, yeah, but, yeah, (laughs) but it's that they're artists, and they still make beautiful and amazing work, and they're capturing a moment of time, you know what I mean? Like, our collection, one thing we didn't mention earlier is, you know, we look at our collection as almost um, a time capsule. Like, we are so moved by what's happening in the world. I mean, this is where, to a certain degree, there's a strong social justice um, slant to a lot of the work, but also, uh, it's a real, we care about artists who are reacting and reflecting to the times. And, you know what? Street graffiti artists do that, too. Yeah. Um, and so, it's just a different way they are reflecting and the way they're expressing it. Well, another thing is... Um you know, Rick, you mentioned uh, Jeffrey Deitch, the Art in the Streets, I think it was called, mm-hmm. the show. And I can tell you, you know, in New York, a lot of people were turning up their nose. And mm-hmm. that that got grouped under Jeffrey Deitch populist, mm-hmm. which, you know, it, it's like people could only see it one of two ways. Mm-hmm. They couldn't. Uh, and But he's always been ahead of his time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, this is neither here nor there, but... but um, Cause, who, you know, as Brian Donnelly, his mm-hmm. civilian, whatever, but he, I mean, he's a, an art collector, and I went mm-hmm. to talk to him about his collection, and he just, he's, in the most obsessive way, has collected these notebooks of the the graffiti artists who were making work oh, wow. in New York in, like, the 70s and 80s, and he just, he opens them up, and he knows every single, like, it, to him, like, this is, like, these are precious things and and oh you know can you imagine someone drawing this and then executing it on a subway train Mm -hmm. like and then and I have to say like I'm on the side of maybe I'm a little bit on the snobby side Mm -hmm. but hearing someone talk about it with that kind of passion that someone might talk about a medieval manuscript or Mm -hmm. whatever was very striking yeah
Yeah, and then for me, I mean, I've seen a lot of shows, over the, you know, since we've yeah. been collecting, and I mean, easily in the top 20 shows, I mean, I would think certainly Art in the Streets, um, like as I mentioned, Gasman's Beyond the Streets, and then um, Banksy's Dismal Land, into the opening, and that, those three shows alone, I'm like, these are shows that are, that were moving and changed the way that we thought about yeah. art. So thank you all for coming. I hope you could hear everything we said, even in the back. And um, we'll see you at the reception. Cool. One brief note to end the podcast. The Jamal Cyrus piece, Untitled 2010, which Tina Perry mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, was seen in the Chicago MCA, the Freedom Principle Exhibition, not the Institute of Contemporary Art at the University of Pennsylvania, the Freedom Principle Exhibition. We regret the error and wanted to clarify. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 